All right, so we're live. All right, episode two, finding you, finding your place. I'm still having trouble with the name. <laughs> finding your place, episode two. I've got my friend, my current client, past client, Andy Shout here. He is um, involved with the VTTI at Virginia Tech. We're gonna have him. We're gonna have him explain what that is. Is this audio good? I don't, I'm not hearing me. All right. Anyway, um, so we're we got we got a good friend here today, Andy Shout, and we're gonna just kind of introduce you guys to him and what he's doing. And I, I don't I don't think people even know. I mean, they might know the Smart Road, but they don't really know what you're up to and how it's impacting the New River Valley. So I wanted to have you on here. I appreciate you being here. Absolutely. Pumped. Cool. All right. So just tell us what VTTI is. Sure. So. <clears throat> Uh, VTTI stands for the Virginia Tech Transportation Institute. So we're a research institute affiliated with Virginia Tech. Um, honestly, probably started about <clears throat> 30 years ago or more. Uh, started as a research center, small group of faculty and staff, students trying to do transportation research. Um, but then over the years, we've essentially grown and it became its own institute. They built a smart road in year 2000, which was at the time a 2.2 two mile long highway test track and um, built a building there. So kind of started to build our own campus. It's actually a stone's throw from the studio here today. Right. And then um, just started building from there. I joined in 2004 when it was probably around 80 or 90 people. Mm -hmm. um, and then since then, we've just continued to evolve to where um, right before COVID, we were at 560 people, 10 buildings, th uh, two new test tracks on top of that. Um, and <coughs> doing on the... I would say on the realm of 40 to $50 million in research each year. Wow. And so as a research institute of tech, we're, you know, nonprofit um, and we're for the most part soft funded, which means we bring in research dollars from out of the state, out of the country, different areas. So we bring money into this area and we do the research. Um, Virginia Tech provides us uh, a base, you know, amount of budget to, to do what we do, but 90% of it really is us bringing funding in to the New River Valley to do this research. And VTTI, and that's VTTI is known all over the world. It's a global brand now. And then a lot of people kind of think about VTTI before they think of Virginia Tech. And they're like, oh, that's what the VT stands for. Yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but yeah, we've been a juggernaut in transportation. Um, largest group of driving safety researchers in the world. And so safety is a big, por big portion of it. Yeah. And that fits with the whole Virginia Tech uh, motto, you know, ut prosum, that I may serve. And then our mission is to save lives, time, money, and protect the environment. Yeah. And so we've just been uh, this institute that's grown both in numbers and, and external research dollars every year, 10% for 20 plus years. Where does most of your dollar, I mean, how does that, how are you soliciting that? Like who's giving you these, these funds yeah. to, and, and like, what are they, what are they hoping from you? Like when they're, I, yeah, just educate me on that. Like, yeah. like how are you getting the money since you have to go and solicit the money? And then what are they trying to get you to do? I know you did something with Ford at some point, you know, we've done a little bit of research. We, we know you've worked with Ford and like tried to do some things uh, with them. You know, they probably provided some money to do some of that. So just tell us about that. Yeah. So <clears throat> we um, pretty much work with everybody. Yeah. And so VTTI is kind of known as this trusted independent research group. And we help everybody. And it's kind of a rare thing to have that, right? You have um, car companies and tech companies that, that compete against each other. Um, but they do feel comfortable knowing that we're working for their competitors while they're while we're working for them, too. It's just what we've created. Hmm. Um, that word independent is that, you know, we don't have any stake in their game right. and their stock prices and those things. We're here to answer tough questions for them right. so that they can develop new products and make things safer. So just like any good company will do, you want to diversify your funding portfolio sure. or any good person wants to do with their retirement funds. Um, so we, uh, you know, we have ton of federal money, so federal grants and federal contracts. So that's, uh, the uh, United States department of transportation, gotcha. the DOT, and they have different organizations like NHTSA, FMCSA, Federal Highway Administration, and they put out things called RFPs, Request for Proposals, in certain areas. And then we write proposals and compete against other research organizations. Gotcha. Um, so we get funding that way. Um, 
you know, more contracts than grants, but we do grant grant research as well. Um, contracts are one of those things where they're like, these are the deliverables. You need to deliver on these. Right. It's like we are a contractor. Grants are a little bit more, I would say, forward thinking, a little bit more long term. There's room there for ex- exploration, trying things out. Uh, you still have some things that you need to kind of meet and make sure you're good stewards of that funding. Um, but we have a bit of both from them. We have uh, Virginia Department of Transportation, probably one of our best and longest term sponsors. They're fantastic. I would say they're more of not just sponsors. Um, that's what we use instead of customers. Sure. Um, but also partners. Like they basically built and own the smart road and we kind of manage it for them gotcha. with the research that we do. Um, so VDOT is amazing. They're one of our best. And then it's the easiest way to bucket it is you got federal government funds, so public funding, mm-hmm. taxpayer money, that kind of thing. So the federal government, state DOTs. And then the other side would be private or industry research um, funding. Yeah. And that's all the car companies, um, tech companies now. They're big into it. You've yeah. got Google and Apple and everybody kind of playing in this space, um, actually accelerating all the innovation that's happening in it. Yeah. Uh, and then suppliers, so tier one suppliers, they, uh, they basically – you know, they're developing products and things that go into the cars. And so a lot of times as a tech supplier, um, a tier one supplier, they are trying to build systems that then Fords and GMs would integrate into their all their production vehicles. Yeah. Anything from airbags to collision avoidance systems to, you know, steering wheels, all those kind of things. So we've diversified our portfolio. We, we have probably 100 sponsors at any given time actively funding us to do around 300 projects. So we're busy. Well, I mean, I've taken a part of some of the studies, you know, you've put me on the list or something and they call me, they want me to come up for a few hours and pay me a $50 something and like ride through the car. And like, like the last time I was up there, it was some sort of autonomous thing. And, you know, they were, they were sending out dummies across the road to see if the car would stop, you know, or like we ran over one of them at, at one point, like it was, it was wild. We were in the back seat, like, like, uh, and you could feel the thing roll over the, I mean, it was, it was kind of wild. Like, what are y'all working on now as far as like, do y'all have any studies going on that you're trying to get people to come in and like be a part of so you can get data? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. If you go to our website, vtti.vt.edu, there's going to be a place on there where you can sign up as a participant. You can be put into our database and it's one of the most critical things we do. Um, we're known as, uh, our base is in human factors research. So we study the behavior um, at that interaction between humans and technology, um, humans and systems in general. And uh, obviously humans play a huge role in transportation. Yeah. Um, we're mostly we're the reason why transportation exists. We gotta get from point A to point B. As fast and safe as possible. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I know you know nothing about that, driving around in circles all day long, serving right. your clients' <laughs> needs, yeah. including right. myself and right. my family. <laughs> um, so that, that human element and the interaction with systems is really important, especially for safety. And so when you implement a new system in a car, you have to see how humans are going to interact with it. And even more so, you want to put in humans into the design process early. Mm -hmm. A good example is, and maybe this is, I don't know what study you you were in, but let's say we build an autonomous system that's letting you, um, we call it adaptive cruise control. It's it's cruise control's on. It's going to slow down if cars slow down in yeah. front of you. It's going to speed up. So you don't have to. That was the one I think yeah, I was a part of. It's longitudinal control. So it's taking care of some of that for you. But what if some event happens, like we call it a surprise event or some kind of imminent collision where somebody walks out or a car stops really hard? Yeah. What we do is we set up those in a controlled, safe environment. We set up those instances. And then when we surprise you with it, we look to see if you take over control of the vehicle or if you trust the vehicle to actually handle the situation for you. Yeah. Um, now, there are ways that we can design it better so you do trust it more. Sometimes if you take control, you'll actually lose the benefits of the system it, that's engaging already. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's what we look at is how to polish and design these systems to make sure that the best, safest outcome happens. So it's a huge part of what we do. Yeah. Um, even more so, you think of autonomy, autonomous vehicles, it's, take, it's taking control away from the human um, with the idea of better outcomes. Yeah. Um, but you have these situations, like I just described, where you don't have fully self-driving autonomy, you have this partial automation. And in those instances, you're actually expected to take over sometimes and not others. 
well, humans have a tough time determining really what, what, what they should do. Yeah. And in fact, a lot of times it's just reactionary. And so we do a ton of research, even more involving humans now that um, self-driving vehicles has really hit the, hit the, um, hit the media and well, it's been accelerating. It's headed to scale. I mean, it's headed to, to the masses for sure. I mean, no matter what you think about electric cars or gas-powered cars or hybrids, like autonomous technology seems like it needs to be available in all of those, to, in my opinion. I mean, I know we got this electric wave coming, but it feels like, you know, all the gas-powered stuff needs to be needs to be there too. I mean, it needs to go into those type of cars as well. What do you think about that? So <clears throat> this is kind of like we all come from autonomous vehicles from different places, but the biggest part is that all of our research really shows that the majority of collisions, fatalities, injuries from crashes – um, they involve human contributing to it in some way. Um, and it's not just because um, we're bad at things. We're actually really good at driving. The yeah. average driver will go 17 years without a police-reported crash. Right. That's pretty incredible. Like, we're very capable. Um, but it's just a, it's amount of miles you drive. And, you know, it's just amount of time before yeah. you're going to kind of get there. Um, the 80-20 rule, you end up with this element where actually there's a, some pockets of people who aren't great drivers and they contribute to the majority of the issues that are right. out there. But we do know that if 80 or 90% of crashes are occurring because of the human, what's going on there is that we're not good at some things like staying vigilant all the time. Uh, we get distracted. I don't yeah. you know, I yeah. wonder what would be so entertaining that we'd be pulling us from this monotonous <laughs> drive. Right? right. Uh, we get tired, you know, S- some people drink and they get intoxicated and then they don't make smart decisions so there's these pieces where we do fail now autonomy has the ability to kind of you know delivering it in a way that where it makes sense to has the potential to eliminate a huge portion and you know we've gradually innovated in transportation we've plateaued out in the u.s of 40,000 deaths a year um worldwide 1.25 million um the vehicle miles traveled is increasing. So we're dri- we're driving more and more and more, and we've kind of kept the fatality to mark, but we're not going to take a chunk out of that without something like autonomy where we can right. take away some of these instances. And so um, I think that's the, the big driver and motivating factor for all of us of, of getting into these. Now, so if you do it right and in the right instances, it's huge potential. Yeah. Now with electric vehicles, you bring that up. Um, these autonomous vehicles, self-driving vehicles, they are just equipped with all sorts of technology and sensors. Uh, you hear it online in different places saying there's more code running through these cars, four times as much code running through them than a fighter jet. You know, like there's right. a lot going on. And with that, you've got sensors and then backup sensors for redundancy and all this going is that it does cater to electric vehicles a little bit more just because gotcha. of the amount of power and kind of reliability you want for this vehicle. Um, so it's going to be an easier, it's going to be an easier manufacturing thing on the electric than it would be with the gas powered stuff. It, it is to some degree because of the power. And then also because it's changing now, but electric vehicles are a little bit more on the higher end price scale. Yeah. Um, and requires specialty maintenance and whatnot. And then with an automated vehicle, because of all the sensors and technology, even further, it, it kind of correlates pretty well with that. Yeah. Um, but the way we're being introduced to these and the way we're really going to see them, it's less about a person buying an automated vehicle. It's more about these companies uh, deploying these in a service related kind of industry where they're not selling it to somebody at half a million dollars. It's more about them putting a taxi in place, like a rideshare service in a city where it can actually drive 20 of the 24 hours a day right? and pick up enough revenue where it runs maybe a million miles a year and they wear it out, but they've able to gain back the revenue off the investment of how expensive it was. Right. So that's how we're going to see it really being introduced first. Taxis, rideshare companies, autonomous trucking, like long haul over a very long period of time. Yeah. Um, they have the ability to you know, all this money being made in the transportation of goods. Um, those are probably where we're going to be seeing them first instead of just purchasing the vehicle. I think the partial automation will scale up and we call it L2, L3, ADAS, uh, advanced driver assistance systems, what we have in our cars now and what Tesla kind of really moved us into quickly. Um, those ones will 
for the next five or 10 years, we'll seeing those increase in the fleet to, to get to 70, 80, 90% of in our cars. Um, so that's what we'll see a little bit more close to what we own. Um, but then we'll experience the autonomy a little bit more in these service vehicles, I think. is. Do, do you have predictions on like when we're going to see the majority of like the infrastructure set up to when, you know, like the New River Valley right now is so underserved with like, like spaces to go and charge your vehicles fast. Mm-hmm. Like, do you see, like just for the New River Valley, I mean, do you see like the infrastructure set up here in this community in the next 24 months? Is it going to be five years? Like what's your prediction on like when most people are driving whatever brand, but it's an electric vehicle? I mean, I know you like, uh, entrepreneurialism and like, you know, new business, small business, large business. And, and when you think about deploying new types of services and things, you, you do it around the largest populations of people because that's where you're going to gain revenue and be able yeah. to build a model that's sustainable. Yeah. So when you think about the new river Valley, we're, we're not like the last ones to get it. Maybe not the last because I mean, we're, there's a lot going on down here. Yeah. The new river Valley yeah. is blowing up. It's yeah. getting bigger and it's, it's, it's exciting to yeah. see. Um, but we're not going to be as soon as Washington, D.C. and Miami and, you know, some of these places in Arizona where it's they're really kind of focusing on let's deploy here and let's build our business services here. Let's learn from it. And then, you know, it'll make it to the more rural areas later. Um, but with the new administration, um, they've been putting out this huge infrastructure bill. Um, and I don't really know where it is in Congress at this point, but the idea is it's huge infrastructure and I think they've talked about something like, um, you know, 500,000 or maybe it's even more than that, um, new charging stations throughout the U.S. in the next four to five years. So mm. it's a pretty aggressive element to move towards the electric by putting in that infrastructure. Because it is, if you can't charge up in these random areas, you're in trouble. You yeah. know? And Tesla, I think, I think Tesla is more of a tech company than a car company. Oh, definitely. Um, definitely. And they put charging stations all over the place. They're really pushing the electric tech more so than selling cars. And I think that that's one of those required things. Like nobody else is going to do it. So they just, you know, tripled down on let's put these charging stations everywhere. So that infrastructure needs to be there for it to become, um, to be adopted. Like that disruptive innovation where everybody starts rolling into it because using cars is freedom. It's the American way. I want to go where I want to go when I need to. There always seems to be a gas station. Um, I had a friend out in, I think she was in Oregon, but, um, had a bunch of trouble trying to navigate to this wedding this last weekend <laughs> because there was a forest fire, so it cut off their original route, and yeah. then they had to backtrack, and yeah. they they almost didn't make it to the location because what are we going to charge our Tesla? Right. And so it's tough and, and until that infrastructure really gets in place, which I think you know will be another five years, even if, if the bill goes through and it's deployed as, as you want it to, right? Um, before we really start to get that feel where every third or fourth vehicle is an electric vehicle. Gotcha. Yeah. Interesting. And when you look at, I I teach this in class. So I I teach in the business school entrepreneurship. And then once in a while, um, every couple semesters, I'll teach um, a graduate level course in technology strategy for executives. And we use Tesla as a case, as an example of say, okay, talk to us about their, their value proposition and their business model. Yeah. And everybody latches on to, well, they've, they sell cars. And the big thing was like, well, they sold a hundred thousand cars this year, but Ford sold 250,000 in just like a month <laughs> or, or a quarter or something. They're right. like, and they're like, so they're, they're failing. They're, you know, there's no way. And I'm yeah. like, well, why is Tesla valued more than Ford then? You know, right. and it blows their mind trying to figure it out. Um, <laughs> and I think that that's the kind of interesting kind of approach to this is that they're just not all about selling cars. They're about changing the industry. Right. That's their success level and they'll get plenty of investment for it. And no doubt. need juggernauts like that to move us forward. I think the tech companies moving in at a just accelerated pace took the, the car and just the original equipment manufacturers, OEMs, yeah. they tried to speed up. And now they're both re- kind of compromising into the middle ground where the tech companies are like, oh, this is harder than we thought. Right. And the car companies are like, well, we're never going to go as fast as them, but we can speed up a little bit. So it's it's a good time to kind of see them. And we're, you know, I say we're benefiting. From a research funding standpoint, we've got tons of partners asking us, um, help us, help us do this faster. Yeah. So it's great. Uh, but it's really cool to see the inside of what they're trying to do and and, and why and trying to establish new business models and 
just change transportation. It's yeah. pretty cool. I, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna lie. I kind of have a man crush on Elon Musk. <laughs> like, like if he has a bad day, we have a bad life. I mean, protect <laughs> that man for like every way we can protect that man. Like, like he's got to survive somehow. Like getting us to Mars and putting the internet in space and like doing all that kind of crazy stuff. You know, changing transportation. Like, uh, yeah. I think yeah. <clears throat> there's been interviews and and whatnot with you hear him talking like he's I'm not really trying to sell cars and I wasn't at the beginning I right. figured we'd fail like he'd said that stuff right he was just trying to jumpstart the whole idea of what transportation could be I mean think about I mean let's take you out of it you're an outlier but most of us drive our car you know about four percent of our lives yeah like commute to work commute home yeah maybe a trip on the weekend very right. short right right it's the second most valuable piece of collateral we have next to our home yeah thanks for that by the way <laughs> um but we use it the least and it's the most costly thing we have yep. maintenance, gas like and depreciation, car payments, depreciation as seeing you drive it off the lot. Yeah. It's like, it is so important to us and part of our identity to have a vehicle and for us to get around, but it's the most underutilized and kind of dumbest investment we make, but Definitely. We, we all do it. So, you know, Elon's kind of approach is like, well, what if we change that up? What if it's, you don't own three cars as a family, you actually own one or none and then you just utilize a service and it's autonomous so it costs less you don't have to pay for a driver but you just pick out whatever car you want to pick you up in the morning you know, maybe <laughs> you got a call and you want an espresso and you get the espresso aut autonomous taxi and it right. picks you up and you're paying like you know 80 percent less and getting even a superior level of transportation so it's that right it's the true sharing um shared ownership kind of thing right maybe it can transform things and as soon as you kind of like present it in that way you're like yeah why why do we spend so much money on cars so he's shaking up the industry and i think we we need those we've got a lot of them i think right now yeah um, these last five and going forward these people that bezos and, and elon musks and richard branson's that are just kind of they can just shake things up with yeah. and for, even if they stumble and whatnot for some reason they they still get people behind them and it's it's kind of cool. Yeah, it's great to be involved in it, but also just watch. It's seeing it's seeing their their example of being bold and taking risk and and risk paying off, you know, and people believing in them and funding them and excellent excellent motivation. Yeah. I mean, that's excellent motivation for me. So yeah, um, so yeah. Hey, so um, I want to get deep into like who you are. You know, like I know you as a dad and a <laughs> and a husband and. And a client, man, and I love like watching you be around your kids and and your family growing, and like I'm gonna love looking back at our pictures that we took as we progressed through this thing. But I don't really know you as like you know the businessman and like how you came to be and like your struggle, like your like how you came up and how you decided on being who you are and like in the getting into the position that you are. So let's just rewind all the way back sure. and let's just let's just start. Let's just start and just like at the beginning on when you was encouraged or had the thought of being like where you are now. Yeah, so <clears throat> I'm from a little town in North Idaho. Um, it's a little ski and lake town. And basically I look back and I'm like, man, I was spoiled. I had the lake right next to me and ski and great little town to grow up in and um, two loving parents. So I was good there. And I went to University of Idaho, which was a couple miles away. And, you know, I feel like go to college, you're like, yeah, I'm going to do this. I was thinking, no, I'll do physical therapy or something. <laughs> took a biology class and was like, whoa, I'm not doing that. Um, <laughs> and I took a psychology class. Professor was super engaging. And I was like, human behavior, that's pretty neat. But, you know, I think about what people do, automatically think about psychology. I'm like, what, are you going to be a therapist? Right. I'm like, oh, <laughs> I don't know. I'll just, I'll just take some more psychology classes. And then I had another professor who was uh, really good research methods and he was doing some research in the psychology department on this thing called the human factors. And I was like, what is that? And he's like, well, come run some experiments with me. And what I realized was that psychology is just about, it's about study of human behavior. Human factors is about designing systems around humans, having them influence. So there's like a harmony there. So they work their best. And I was like, okay, so there's a field related to technology innovation and psychology. I'm like, all right, I got to check this out. Nice. So I did some research with him on, you know, different ways of displaying graphs on computers and 
and met another professor who he worked with downstairs who had a flight simulation room. So it was kind of like this room, black, had huge screens, had a cockpit, <laughs> eye tracking equipment, heads up displays, funding from the Air Force. And I was wow. like, sign me up. <laughs> um, trip in typical dude fashion. I'm like, oh, flight simulation? Like, let's do this. <laughs> he was doing a lot of visual psychophysics experiments, looking at how we perceive motion in flight simulation. And so I got to work on some things like head-up displays for fighter pilots, um, looking at, uh, instead of just providing them a speed indicator and altimeter, like right in their head-up display, um, actually presenting stuff in your peripheral vision because we see motion better in our periphery than we do mm. right, in the, right, right, right in our uh, central vision. So doing experiments, running people through these, having them perform flights with these different things, see how, how well they perform. And that's when I got hooked to human factors. And I stayed there for a grad degree and did internships with Battelle, um, with Daimler Chrysler. And, and just that's when the transportation thing came in. I was in flight. It's harder to really, you know, there's, it's a smaller area in the aviation world. But surface transportation was kind of wide open. And sure. so after I did some internships, I put my thesis on that and focused on perception of um, how, how speed is in driving in fog. Like this morning, there was a heavy fog out. I don't know if you were up early I wasn't up. No, I wasn't up there. <laughs> I, I, yeah, you know me. A little sleeping. But yeah. um, <laughs> there was this huge article in Nature, which is kind of like a premier journal in the science field. And they talked about how fog reduces contrast makes you think you're moving slower so you speed up and that's why mm. people drive too fast in fog so i did some research on i didn't say i don't really believe that i think it depends and um so i looked at thickness of fog and so if you drive in a certain thickness of fog you actually can see pretty well close to you you just can't see far away yeah what that means is that the objects that are moving through your vision the optic flow the stuff you can see is going by faster so it should actually be the reversed effect. You might perceive you're moving faster, so you might slow down. Uh. So I did my thesis on that and showed that certain thicknesses of fog actually has the reverse. And then I was like, okay, finishing grad degree, got to apply to jobs. And I published and I presented at a conference. <clears throat> this is the perfect Hokie Nation story. Like, yeah. uh, I was in Baltimore, some 3,000 miles away from Idaho. And uh, I got over to this conference. There's a couple of us. And I'm at the conference, and I just noticed, like, there's – all of these young, smart students and researchers, they're all wearing maroon and orange. They all have VTTI on their badge, Virginia Tech. And, I'm, and there's like 20 or 30 of them just rolling around this human factors conference. And I'm like, who are, this is like a gang. They're just, <laughs> they're in every session presenting all this research. Then I learned about the smart road and how they can create fog, rain, snow. I'm like, you can create, instead of doing it in simulation, doing it in actual real world. Yeah. I was like, oh man. So I applied for jobs until I got one, and that's when I started the 3,000-mile trip out to Blacksburg um, nice. in 2004 with, for the job in typical fashion. Again, thinking I'd stay here two years and then jump back to the West Coast, and then it kept me here for almost 10. Um, I got my MBA instead of a PhD just because the, the business influence, I wanted to understand it more. It was sure. more of my passion, and um, met Jesse and got married, and then uh, <laughs> I actually <clears throat> jumped out of transportation into the medical field for an opportunity in DC. Same thing with humans involved with fatalities and issues in transportation. Um, medical error is the third leading cause of death in the U S it's, you know, devices are not made, uh, very well for end users and errors occur, um, in healthcare practice. And so I jumped into that for a while, which was awesome. I uh, worked at MedStar Health up at Washington, D.C. Incredible group of people, really innovation-focused. Um, but along that journey, I was writing business plans for some friends and partners out west. Um, they had a virtual design development firm. They build websites, mobile apps, enterprise software. And they always have clients that wanted them to build something, but they didn't have any money. So they'd hit me up to write business plans for them so that they could go get some investment right. and then give it to this firm to develop wow. what they wanted. That's when I really started getting to the startup side. Um, and it helped to pay for some of my grad school and whatnot. Um, nice. But I was writing business plans and just realized how much fun it was. Strategic documents on new startups. I was like, this is cool. And then eventually they <clears throat> they were like, we're doing this marketing firm in Las Vegas. Um, Tony Shea, who was the CEO of Zappos, um, after he kind of sold the Amazon and he relocated their headquarters back to Las Vegas. And then he was giving out about 
$400 million of his own money in half a million dollar grants to the local community to start up businesses. Wow. He's trying to, you know, regenerate the Las Vegas that he loved growing up. Yeah. And in the downtown part, not the strip. So the old part of town. So he wanted, he brought headquarters there. He wanted a good environment for all of his employees. What you, what time frame was this? Um, 2015 is when I went there. Okay. Um, so it had been happening um, for about a year or two before that. Gotcha. So he was really trying to prop Vegas back up from the crash. Yeah. And and you got there kind of as it was starting to recover. Yeah. And so he was giving out half a million dollars. Imagine being like, oh, Scott, you have an idea for a business here here's in town? Half a million dollars. You have like 20. But he's, <laughs> he was like, here's a half a million dollars. Why don't you go after it? And you're like, great. But what was happening was they would build and they'd get something started up in a minimum viable product form, but they had no idea how to market it yeah. because Las Vegas is an enigma. Right. To make it successful, you got to market to locals. You got to market to tourists coming in who are only coming in for a week and leaving. It's really hard to do. And so none of them were really getting off the ground. Right. So we built this marketing company and then they asked me to come out and run it for them. And that's when Jesse and I packed up the kids and, <laughs> and I did half and half from DC and, and Vegas. And then the startups, we started rolling out a few different ones. I loved it. Um, we had our third kid and then it, it came to the point where Jesse's like, well, I want to raise the kids back home. And so I was like, Oh, okay. I agree. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. It's probably not the best place. Las Vegas is a blast for adults. Yeah, um, no doubt. Not probably not the best. One of my favorite education. places. That's one of my favorite places. <laughs> um, so I kind of reached out to my network here and said, hey, we're thinking about coming back. And VTTI said, come back and help us, you know, scale up our automated vehicle research. We've got tons of demand. We just need to figure out how to do it well. And then the business school asked if I'd teach entrepreneurship. And I was like, this is like the perfect blend of I get to work in human factors, advanced technology, and I still get to work in entrepreneurship. Uh, maybe I, you know, while raising the kids won't build another startup myself right away, but I get to help all these brilliant student minds at the university um, try to develop and on their the side, dreams. now you're a farmer. <laughs> I know, yeah. <laughs> Thanks to Scott, everybody. Um, <laughs> I now own a farm and vineyard, um, but it's a blast too. I mean, it's all opportunities and everything kind of fits in place. But uh, me in a nutshell is um, I just love opportunities, uh, challenges. I, I would say pretty mission-driven on trying to, be a force for good in the world. Yeah. So it'd be disrupt for good. It's kind of my slogan. Um, whether it's in private industry, startups or nonprofits, I spend the majority of my time with nonprofits just trying to, to try to leave a good momentum, good energy in the world. Um, and so I get to do that now, both helping startups and at VTTI trying to make sure transportation is even more safer as we go forward, including the new river Valley. And that's a big part of it. Like we're, it's a great way to, the way we were set up VTTI is we've got 20 or 30 job openings right now. People can apply to these positions. We're back on the growth scale after COVID. Um, so we're bringing jobs in the New River Valley. VTTI over the years has probably brought in close to half a billion dollars in funding into Virginia that wouldn't have been here if, if we hadn't developed it. Um, so it's jobs, safer roads, great community, um, get good people here so we can continue to grow it. We're going to need right that path. link. We're going to need that link. We'll post that in the description, Yeah, you know, on the YouTube video so that people can click on that and go apply for that. Yeah, there's, <coughs> they're popping up so fast, can't even get them on our website fast enough. But, uh, yeah, I'll get you on any links you want. I think, you know, people around here can sign up and come participate in studies and be compensated for it. So mm -hmm. that's fun. Um, we do open houses every year so they can come see everything we've got going on. And then, uh, yeah, jobs, job openings. And it's not just engineers. Right. Like we've got people helping with administration, administration, fiscal jobs, contracts, jobs, um, psychology, everything you think of. Like it's uh, we've got a lot of different kinds open. Cool. And it's all playing in some pretty fun space. I mean, I love uh, I love that this, you know, the reason why I love this area is because I thought I could come back here after, you know, a failed attempt of being in the golf business, you know, running, running like golf facilities and teaching kids how to play golf and things like that. Like I did that. I came back. I, I knew I loved this place and I knew I could find a way to find opportunities for myself mm -hmm. in this place that I love. And, and I just love hearing about, you know, job growth and opportunity and, and these businesses that come up in this area that can supply livelihoods to help families and individuals just accomplish whatever their goals are. Yeah. So it's awesome that, that VTTI is here 
and that they have an asset like you, uh, a part of it. I, you know, I will definitely lean on you on every idea. Like, like you want to be a part of my board, like come, come get a, a seat on the board. You know, <laughs> like I'm excited that, uh, you know, you guys are doing this, this flower farm, like your, your wife's vision for this thing. Like you guys are the entrepreneur family. <laughs> like really, uh, yeah, it's I mean, exciting to see. Like, it's a great example. It, like just being around you guys is like, well, I, I, I like this. I'm definitely going to need that. Like, I want these kind of, like, the, you know, the, the family that you've created, dude, it's awesome. Like, I'm proud of you. Oh, I'm thanks. Just, I'm proud of you. I mean, there's a lot of luck there marrying such a wonderful person. Jessie is, she's so passionate, and she has these visions on so many different ideas and things. And this is just something that she's wanted for so long. And it's it's like, you know, we, we all worked together to try to find something that was just right that wasn't going to be something you sacrifice on. What a hard, hard I can't thing wait, to do. I can't wait for her to come on and us tell the story of, like, <laughs> w- what we were about to be and what we were, like, the next day. Yeah. I, I can't wait to have that story with her. Yeah, I know, the what ifs, right? Yeah. Um, but, you know, she's, she's one of these people who she's like, no, I see this. I have a vision for it, and it's going to happen. Like, and, and. I'm a critical thinker and that's where teaching entrepreneurship comes in. I teach you how to de-risk decisions. Yeah. There's always risk, but right. you want to take calculated risk. Right. And so I think about it from every angle. It's the researcher in me too. It's trying to understand from an engineering perspective where the fail mo- failure modes are so we can design around them. But, you know, she just has this vision and this will and and you just see it and you're like, yeah, you're going <laughs> to do this. I, I, I don't have any doubts. No so. doubts tell me what you need and then we'll just move forward. Um, and it's exciting to see like finally, cause I told you, I mean, we was here in grad school working hard. Then we moved to DC, whole new career, had a second child, moved to Vegas, three other careers happening. We had another child (laughs) and then we moved back here and we were living in our old house, um, redesigning that it's been constant, like changes and, and not the, the roadway for her to actually do all these things she wants to do and now she has it she and, does. Uh, it's it's cool like yeah. um i'll she'll she'll be so successful that um i'll probably just be fine with uh i want to buy stock as soon as possible <laughs> <laughs> take a seat back from virginia tech and i will just do what she tells me on the farm <laughs> like it'll be exciting to watch right. but she's incredible so yeah it's tons of luck too it's we're partners and everything and she's amazing it's awesome it's awesome to see y'all's relationship and and just be a part of that for the time that that we got to you know that's pretty intimate when you know when i'm you know rushing out to every place and trying to help y'all make decisions like just seeing y'all and, and the family it's been has been awesome for me yeah so it's it's, it's a roller coaster each time and you're doing it like a hundred times to, a year yeah, at least right, yeah right so that that's a big blessing for me uh shout out to everybody that says yes to me in that in that fashion but, um, but yeah, hey, I want to get back to, um, we got this segment in the show. We, we want to kind of like debunk some myths. Yeah, yeah. You know, we, wanna, we want to like, we want to, you know, state like what we hear people say and have you say, well, that's not true. Or, or yeah, actually that's kind of true or something like that. So um, the first one we have on here is self-driving cars are unsafe and will require the passenger to be alert at all times to retake control. <clears throat> yeah, so um, there's different levels of automation. I'll try to keep it simple because yeah. I don't want to geek out too much. Right. right? Then we can need plots and diagrams. And <laughs> um, but if you, if you look at it, there's five levels of automation. Um, you know, level one and level two, that's kind of where we're at right now. So level two means there's some level of control longitudinally that's automating and then also laterally, which is lane keeping. Mm-hmm. So you have cars now that are, come into production that you can buy, um, which will keep you from running into cars on the highway. And when it slows down and speeds up, you know, keep you from going outside of the lane, but it requires the driver to be involved, which means you have to touch the steering wheel every 10 to 30 seconds to indicate you're staying vigilant. Yeah. Um, and so that is a lower level automation, partial automation. The key of those levels is that, um, the driver is responsible for the drive. So it's an assistance system. It's not full automation. Right. So you're still controlling it. Level three is this quirky middle ground. I'm going to skip it for a minute, but it's in the middle of where we get to self-driving. So level four is self-driving vehicles. Um, this is the level where there might not even be a steering wheel. It is fully in control of the drive. 
within an operating design domain, which means you take a zip code and you take a certain type of weather. And if it's sunny, there's no rain or snow, and it's in this grid, it can drive self-driving. No steering wheel needed, maybe. Maybe it has a steering wheel, but when you go into level four mode, it's going to handle everything. So you don't have to take over or be in control. Level five is like the the unicorn, the mythical creature. I don't know if we can capture it or not. You get close to it, it's going to run away. Um, And level five is basically like there are no restrictions. It's fully autonomous. You get in your new new rover and you Mm -hmm. say, take me to Florida. And you just put your seat back and you just start listening to podcasts, watching <laughs> movies, whatever, and it's just going to handle it. goes across state lines, handle it any kind of weather. It's like you got to have that stretch dream. Mm. So whether that's possible or not, who knows? Gotcha. Um, probably possible, but there's always quirks. Yeah. You can't escape physics. At some point, something crazy can happen. Yeah. Um, level four and level five, that's an element where the driver's not responsible anymore. So if a car company or tech company provides level four, when it's in four or five automation – they're responsible. Um, it's not your fault if it gets in a crash, unless, I don't know, you're actually like b- trying to break the car. Right. Level three is in that middle ground. So level three is this area where the car is in control when automation is on, but you need to be ready to take over in these rare occurrences or cases that might happen. Yeah. Let's say mud is splatters all over the sensors, some f- system failure occurs, Um, lane lines aren't on the road and the mapping system can't connect something weird. You have to be able to take over. This is a human factors nightmare (laughs) It's in the middle here for us because if I'm asleep, it's got to alert me, wake me up. I need to get my bearings, understand what's going on and take over the vehicle. Now, if you're going 60 miles an hour and it takes 20 seconds, how far have you driven? You know, you've driven a long time where you're in this stage where the car isn't feeling good about the situation and you're still waking up from your nap. That's an extreme kind of situation, but it's definitely feasible. So you're seeing some people dabble in level three. And as a researcher, I'm happy to do it. Um, it's, we can do it in a controlled facilities like we have on our smart road and things to really learn if we can do it. Yeah. Um, but you're seeing a lot of companies saying we're doing level one and level two, and then we're going to skip three and s- stick to four. Uh, um, that middle ground is a, it's a super gray area and it's very like hard to do. Yeah. yeah. And if when you're, you know, when you're responsible, you know, liability and, and all those, it's, it's, it's a dangerous area. So self-driving cars, are they dangerous, et cetera? The thing about it, if you get to four and five, it will be reliable. We have very strict um, regulation and safety testing that goes into deploying things on the road. Um, but if you think about how the idea of the design is, is that we have two eyes, two ears, and we're driving, right? Well, a self-driving car in autonomous mode can have a hundred eyes looking in all directions and it never blinks. Right. doesn't get tired. Right. Um, there's a lot of benefits to this designs of these systems. In fact, they don't just have eyes. They've got multiple types of eyes. They have laser eyes, radar, wow. camera vision. And so the opportunity, if you can dial it in and do it the right way is that they absolutely have the ability to be safer in, you know, almost every situation. Yeah. Um, it's a it mess game, right? It's a, it's a, it's an odds of, of uh, some sort of turbulence, you know, like the human can't react as fast or they're not as alert. Like there's more odds and chances of the human error than, than this machine error. So if we're judging the risk, it's far safer on the other thing than, than the human control, like bottom line, right? If, if you do it, yeah, if you do it the right way. I mean, yeah. you've got these companies that compete against each other. It's no doubt some of them are probably going to do it better than others. Yeah. You know, in some levels, it's a black box there. You don't know how their AI and algorithms working and, and what's going to happen. Um, they have to set it up and train it to handle all sorts of situations. It's very tough to do. We have an example of one of our statisticians was driving um, a level two vehicle and at night approaches a work zone, starts to come in the work zone. He's got his hands off. And then a bear jumps over the, the, the barrier, the Jersey barrier, and runs right in front of him. And he has to grab it and turn it to miss the bear. <laughs> it was an automation. Like, do you think that there was a situation where there, these car companies at that stage were like, we need to train this to avoid a bear at night in a work zone <laughs> with like no time to collision. Like it's just going to happen. <laughs> I mean, we have to help them come up with all these crazy ideas right. and they have to prioritize them on how they should train this to handle what situations. And I would say if everything was predictable, if we took I-81 and we said, okay, 
all cars on I-81, all autonomous, no manual drivers. We could do that probably tomorrow wow. because all of a sudden you have predictability. Yeah. They can talk to each other. They know what they're going to do. You have 100% adherence to the, to the rules of the roadway. Right. But if you go out there now, I would say 1% of the people are driving the speed limit. In fact, they're driving under the speed limit, too slow and creating a safety hazard. Right. Nobody's adhering to the rules of the road. Yeah. That's the complexity. Putting these on the road with humans that are driving it, humans are unpredictable. And there's so much variable. Yeah. Yeah. All over the place. So that's the that's the tough part. Gotcha. Um, so, again, back to your question. Um, self-driving cars absolutely have the potential to be safer than us. Um, it's hard to do, though. And it's it's not a it's our director used to say it's not a revolution like it's going to happen overnight. It's an evolution still. Yeah. It's really hard to do it really well, uh, but that's what we're all working on. So, you know, to go deeper on that, I feel like you you guys are doing such you know in depth research. You're spending so much time. Even if you got something that could go to the public and be safe, now you got to deal with the government. Now you got to deal with like regulations and like how that's going to play out and like you know, the fears that they have and the lobbies that they have that are lobbying against all this stuff. Like, it just seems like, I mean, it's just going to be a long time before we get to full scale, like where everybody's like understanding and like happy with it because change is hard. Yeah. You know, change is like the hardest thing. Yeah. Regulation is interesting. So when I came back here in 2016, there was a really interest. It was an interesting time because there's so much hype about it. There was a lot of research money getting put into it, um, but the government wasn't regulating before understanding it. And mm. this is one of those times where industry and government they were, they were working really well together. Nice. There's this conference called the Society of Automotive Engineers Government Industry Meeting, and it used to be a very small thing. And then it was so good because all these industry people were there, all the government was there, and they were just working together to try to have a conversation. The government and like it's a person. It's not yeah. one person. The government, though, yeah. most stakeholders, they understood that the opportunity to innovate and develop here is going to be done by these industry players. We can't just block it because we're afraid of it. But like it's going to happen no matter what. So yeah. let's let's be open to this and keep the conversation going. And the industry partners were coming in, not thinking of them as the enemy, but saying, yeah, how do we help? How how can you help us do this safely? Right. Uh, but let us still proceed. And it's been a really good balance for these last five years. Um, my opinion and I'm on the podcast. So it's really what my opinion means right now. Um, so it's been that way. And so they haven't just been putting regulation just for the sake of it. Um, it's been a really, I think good symbiotic back and forth. They're doing the research on it. We're doing a lot of it. We're reviewing all the federal motor vehicle safety standards on what would need to change to allow because an automated vehicle doesn't need mirrors, right? Right. Well, mirrors are required on cars. Right. So how do they translate that? Right. Steering wheel? Like, yeah, that's needed in a car. Well, not if it's automated. So <laughs> everything that was kind of a standard, like by every sense of the word, is now being revisited because this is a game changer. It nice. changes everything. So everybody's understood that this is going to require a lot of work. Um, but, of course, the whole point of the regulation is to keep the roads safe mm. and and do the best we can. Um, and so I it's been really good experience on both sides. It's uh, everybody's at the game for the right reasons, at least. Well, I think you touched on this next question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Self-driving cars will not work in adverse weather conditions. Yeah, to some degree it's, it's true. It's um, lane lines are really important. VDOT is a tremendous department of transportation. We're so lucky to have them. um, Amazing people that work in there. Um, But I mean, there's budget constraints, right? They're working their, their butts off trying to keep lane lines on the road, fix our bridges as mm-hmm. much as they can. But, I mean, they don't even have enough budget to constantly be painting the lines for as much as we drive, right? Yeah. So you've got things like lane lines. They get covered up in rain. It's really hard to see the lane lines. Um, as a human, it is. Um, if it snows, covers it up. So you have mapping systems and some types of location that can help with that, but it's really hard to do. And like I said before, you don't just want – your cameras to be able to identify the lane lines. You want your cameras, you want your LIDAR to help with that so there's redundancy, so it can verify, so that it's super accurate. Mm-hmm. Um, and so adverse weather conditions can have effect. It doesn't mean that it's impossible. Like, we just need to keep getting better with these better sensors. And um, So y'all are developing, are helping develop technology, possibly, that, that could be put in the road, that could, you know, melt the snow quicker or, like, like keep keep the computers on track, like – 
like a some sort of system where it doesn't it doesn't matter if they're covered or the adverse uh, are y'all working on something like that yeah infrastructure definitely can be um improved to make autonomous vehicles work better absolutely it's just a really expensive investment and very timely you know when VDOT puts in a, a road or something, they expect that road to be in good shape for 20 years. Right? Yeah. Uh, it's not something they can just change out every year just sure. to catch up. So the autonomous vehicle companies, self-driving cars, are trying to build them to where they don't have to rely on infrastructure needs. They're trying to develop them to handle the situation regardless. But there are things that you can do. Um, barrels and work zone barrels and things like that, some of them you know, radars can't detect. So they need to make them so that they're m more beneficial to these sensors so they can detect them. Little things like that um, are very helpful. Um, there's something called V2X or CV2X. It's connected vehicle to everything. So it's this constant communication between infrastructure and vehicles. And, and that is really helpful, too, because it can signal to you uh, two miles ahead, leapfrog signals oh down wow. the cars to you that traffic stopped ahead. So your vehicle can be prepared for that, like traffic could stop at any time. Um, there's a lot of infrastructure things that can be helpful to this to make it better. And we'll and to get it to that level five, I think, would be necessary. Yeah. Um, but, man, those are really long-term investments. And it's not like it's really hard for the car companies to say, yeah, we're going to go ahead and invest. Here's, you know, here's another billion dollars for you to invest in Washington, D.C. in the infrastructure just so we can deploy our cars there. It mm -hmm. still relies on citizenry and the taxpayer money and the governments to try to do that. And it's just not something that... They don't make profit, right? So they right. don't have huge pools of funding to just deploy that like tomorrow. Right. So I will say that they're trying to develop the cars to be able to handle it without the requirements. That of would be the best scenario, it sounds like. Yeah. But that's why level four, I think, is the best one is they deploy these in an area that they know that they've trained on. They know the infrastructure. They know everything that's going on there. And they'll and then they'll they'll work based on the weather conditions that it can handle. And then they'll have it set up where it won't work if the weather gets too bad. Gotcha. All right, cool. That's why some companies have started in like Arizona. Weather's pretty predictable there. No doubt. <laughs> Got gridded roads and yep. really good sunshine. Just 90 degrees and dry <laughs> yeah. all the time. Um, there's a reason why they're deploying there first is they want to get a lot of miles, do it in a pretty predictable place so that they can really be training yeah. the system to learn. Not a bad place to go. The desert, flat, yeah. dry. Yep. Don't have to worry about the conditions typically. Yeah. Yeah. So you're going to see close to the equator deployments, I think, before they move up. Right. Other Makes areas. sense. Yeah. When it starts hitting mountains, that's I think that's going to be a problem. Yeah. We'll see. So like Torque Robotics, I mean, local. Yeah. Um, Michael Fleming, entrepreneurial genius, in my opinion. Um, you know, some of them are like, let's just go to the hardest areas we can. Like he deployed for years in Las Vegas just to really try to learn and predict human behavior, pedestrian behavior. Mm -hmm. I tell you what, I've lived there. <laughs> Pedestrians in Las Vegas, they do stuff you would never even think of. Saw one rolling down on a luggage cart from a hotel right down the middle of the road. <laughs> um, I mean, so Just right kudos the strip, to them. Huh? They're like, we're going in there. We'll have safety drivers, but we're going to the hardest area to try to really start up leveling up our ability to predict pedestrians. Wow. So you can take it different ways. Um, he was also collecting data in, in pretty traditional roadways and whatnot. But, I mean, if you want to you wanna get to it, let's get to it, right? <laughs> right. He, he threw it into the into the heavy mix. Hey, trial by fire. Yeah. You know, yeah. just jump in. And he had safety controls in place, so he was comfortable doing it. A lot of training, um, a lot of good people in the car to make sure. But, um, yeah, there's just different approaches. Cool. All right, self-driving cars can be easily hacked. Yeah, so <clears throat> cyber, it's an interesting area. Um, I mean – We've got, uh, at Virginia Tech, we have uh, the Hume Center. They do research on cyber. Um, we kind of pull them into projects when we get into the cyber side of things. Um, and you talk to some of them, they're like, I mean, you can hack a car now just with the tire pressure sensor. Like, I'm sure your rover has a tire pressure sensor on it. Um, mm -hmm. They'd be like, yeah, we can hack your car if we wanted to and get to some level into your system just because your tire pressure is communicating to your to your car. And it's like, uh, what? It's like, but why would they, right? There's right. no r real big reason to, but yeah, of course we can. So with the influx in technology, it's definitely, of course, feasible, but it's feasible now. Yeah. Um, not to necessarily go in and control your vehicle, but to mess with it, shut it down maybe. So <coughs> it, there, there's just, yeah, there's an increasing possibility with the more tech you put in. But one thing people don't realize is that these self-driving vehicles, they're actually 
being built right now and deployed, they're not relying on satellite. They're not using GPS. GPS is notoriously noisy. Yeah. Um, they're not really connected. They're kind of built to be pretty much standalone. That's why they have so much computer power going into them. And it's because they don't want to introduce vulnerabilities when they don't have to. Right. But um, Malcolm Gladwell, I, don't, I mean, author, producer, great guy. He was um, executive producer on this documentary that we got to play a part in. And he has some really interesting thoughts on this. And he's like, listen, it's going to happen. Like, I'm sorry. It's just somebody's going to hack in in the future. And these things are going to create a huge 500-car pileup or something. He's like, it's going to happen. It couldn't happen before, but it will be able to happen. So it will. He, but he's just like, but you got to look at the, you know, it's significant um, drawbacks to an individual with regards to I want to drive my own cars and I don't want all this autonomy, but significant benefits to society at large. And so if you can stop 10 or 20,000 lives from being, you know, passing away every year, and then it's just about what you're willing to, you know, how much risk from a system perspective are you, are you willing to take versus the human side? Sure. Like, you know, we're okay with humans being fallible because we're all human. But, man, we don't have a very good tolerance for a machine making a mistake or, like, um, something that's regulated. So flight, if you, you know, we ask these guys over here, what do you think is safer, flying or driving a car? And they'll say flying. And they'll say, okay, how much more? And they'll say, I don't know, two, four times safer. And it's actually like a 1,000 times safer. Right. It's so regulated. They've got so many checks and balances. It's not as complex up in the air. There's definitely complexities. But if a plane crashes, we freak out. We, like, lose our mind because our expectation is that it's safe. Yeah. We don't really have that expectation for transportation. I mean, 1.25 million lives lost globally every year because of this. Um, wild. Imagine the millions and millions of injuries and things. And so if we don't take advantage of something like this, um, what's the moral dilemma here? Like, yeah. it, it, we're almost willing to accept that many deaths. So it's a shift in understanding of the risk, and it's a, it's a mental exercise to feels try like, to figure it out. It feels like we just solved the problem. We just need to get it all the way to the to the market at an affordable thing, and, you know, less casualties will occur. Yeah. Yeah, it's mm -hmm. seen the um, – I mean, this is heroic level of opportunity here. Um, it's not just a number of life being saved. It's a family member, you know, they've got – spouse they've got a partner kids yeah. extended family it, ru it ruins lives and it's just devastating yeah. you can go the other route and think about it from an economical standpoint it's terrible for the economy yeah um it's just this like, is this is pro-human this is yeah. pro-human yeah like what what that this work we're doing is going to save hum human lives you know, you never know when that life stops, what they what they were headed toward in life and what they would have accomplished and contributed right. and all that stuff. So, like, I'm pro Like, that is a, a big thing for me is pro-human all the way. Yeah. You know? And <clears throat> that's where some people may come at it from a different standpoint. Yeah. Maybe huge investment teams looking to make profit off of some new model. They got to get ahead of the curve, yeah. the hype cycle of new technology. Um, <laughs> but to be honest, like, most of this is born out of this element where, Humans are great. We're incredible. But we, we can't do everything. We can't stay vigilant all the time. We get distracted. We get tired. If there's a way to introduce automation and save tons of lives, um, that's really a huge motivation. That's why we get up early in the morning, stay late, um, yeah. and many of the people we work with, for sure. So, cool. All right. Well, we want to bring up a picture from your Instagram and just talk about behind the picture. You know, we want to bring that up and just you just explain what's going on here, when it was, and like what you were what you were doing here. So <laughs> let's just talk about it. All right. So <clears throat> this is gonna mess with my memory now. <laughs> I can't remember if this is Colorado or if it's Tahoe. Um, so I'm I'm the guy with the yellow pants. I don't know. <laughs> and then in front is Dr. Gregory Fitch, um, VT alum. He worked at VTTI for many years. At this stage, he was working for VTTI, and, and we were on a trip. Um, I think this is in Tahoe. So th these are the snow-capped mountains you see from Las Vegas? Is that is that <laughs> Tahoe? Like, no, ta this is I, I, pretty far north. Okay, gotcha. So California. Okay, um, gotcha. California, Reno, that area on the border. I just remember being out yeah. in Vegas in March, and there was this mountain range that was snow-covered. And it was like 90 degrees where I was, but you could see the snow. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it couldn't have been like 200, like 100 miles away. Like, yeah. So, <clears throat> um, 
Greg is, he's now working at Android Auto. And so he's working for Google um, and he's working in transportation space still. In fact, he was just out here last week, which was great. Um, but he and I took a trip out to, out to Tahoe and met up with some of my old college friends and they put us up and basically got us passes to ski all these great mountains and everything. And, uh, and we were just geeked out. Like Greg's from Toronto. He's used to skiing mountains up in Canada. I'm from Idaho. So when we lived here in New River Valley for so many years, we didn't have as many options for grand mountains. Right. Um, Snowshoe. Yeah. So we've <laughs> taken a couple trips together, one of which was Tahoe, which was <coughs> three or four days of just hitting every hard mountain we could find and being completely exhausted by the end of the day, shredding everything we could find. Nice. So um, So this is something you love to do? Yeah. Yeah. Nice. I, I grew up in that little ski lake right. mountain, right? I got pretty spoiled having great mountains right there. Right. And, up near the Canadian border and uh, traveled. I've skied in Switzerland and different places. And so Sweet. it's definitely a passion. It's harder to do nowadays. Yeah, like, uh, and my knees are getting a little rough. <laughs> Might be getting older people, but <laughs> young at heart, old in the knees. Honestly, I, I feel, I feel 25 years old still. I don't, <laughs> I, don't I, I mean, you know, I've aged for sure, but it, I, my mind, just doesn't feel any yeah. any age on it. That's good. Yeah. Or you just got sold. You don't remember. But that, either maybe, way, it works maybe. out. It works out well. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we're going to wrap this up here, man. I appreciate you being on here. Yeah. Um, it's been an honor working with you and, and helping you in, you know, the real estate thing. And just uh, I'm excited to, to see what you guys create out there. And thanks for being on the show. Where Where are people... I mean, we want to direct them to VTTI, like, you know, like if they want to come hear more about like what you're doing, like, like point them in the direction that you want to point them in. Yeah. So <clears throat> as usual, I'm doing a bunch of different stuff, right? Yeah. I'm on boards of some companies. I love that. Um, VTTI, go to vtti.vt.edu. It's our main website and get everything you need from there. We're actually rebuilding the website now and it'll probably be launching in a month or two. Um, we just recently reorganized VTTI. So um, you know, look at it now, sign up to be a participant in some studies and then just check out what we're doing. We've got all sorts of stuff going on, but also come back again and see the new website and how we've restructured VTTI. It's, um, we're excited about this next year. Um, in the next five years, it's going to be great. Um, I also teach in Pamplin college of business. So in the department of management, um, you really should try to keep track of everything going on in the entrepreneurship realm here in the New River Valley. You know, you have Ramp, which is this regional accelerator, um, trying to help out um, young businesses get funding and go through their incubator program. You've got the Apex Center for Entrepreneurship on campus. Um, they're co-curricular, so they're doing it outside of the normal curriculum, building a center. They have an accelerator and incubator. Uh, I teach entrepreneurship on campus. The students here are amazing. Like, it's so fun to teach seniors how to really, after they've gotten their entrepreneurship minor or their major, how to help them basically take a semester as a capstone and spin up a startup and wow. go through that feasibility approach. It's so fun and it's invigorating, but I just got to say like Virginia tech is now a juggernaut for entrepreneurship. Um, and that's just only going to help the New river Valley. Dude, we just yeah. got to keep them here. We just got to keep creating an ecosystem where they feel comfortable starting their company here. They have access to everything they need. Affordable housing. Yeah. Well, there yeah. you go. Affordable housing. Yeah. Um, lots of people here so that they can hire good people. Yep. They have, they have choices rather than just, you know, settling for certain team members. Michael Fleming, you know, he kept Torque Robotics here, worked it for 12 years, waited for the right time in the market to be, have their majority stake acquired by Daimler trucks. But part of that deal was he wanted to keep Torque headquarters here wow. in Blacksburg. Wow. I mean, that's, that's amazing. That's awesome. We, we need to keep that going. No doubt about it. And so I've got my own little side missions here on the entrepreneurship front, and you and I can help each other do that, is get good people here, keep good people here, yep. create a good economy with lots of um, talented yep. people and, and grow this, um, you know, a really healthy New River Valley. Yeah, we have a symbiotic relationship opportunity just in that, in just in that fashion because I'm going to be, you know, knowing where the affordable housing is, I'm going to influence that. You're going to need people to stay here to get these jobs and, and keep developing these technologies and things like that. I'm excited for our future yeah. moving forward. So Yeah, another tough one, and you and I, should, you know, I'll leave this as your last challenge to think about is, sure. let's say I want to hire in some senior talent from outside of Virginia and bring them here. Yeah. You know, there's the spousal replacement. Is, uh, they need placement too. Yeah. 
And so that's a tough thing is to create this ecosystem where it's not just hiring one person, it's that they have a Spouse. landing where they have other job opportunities. Yeah. Um, having their, for their, a good landing for their family so that they're not investing a whole bunch on just one person's employment. Right. Um, right. So we got to do better about that. There might be something there um, where we can help communicate that. I know like Onward NRV and, and some of our local chambers of commerce and stuff, they're working on those things. Yeah. Uh, but the best thing we can do is, is think about bringing people in um, into here for those positions and having jobs for them. And then they will help. I promise if I'm hiring people to come in, they're going to create more jobs. <laughs> um, and that's what I'm talking about is trying to get a little bit more of an exponential growth by bringing good people in um, who are part of this uh, new river Valley Hokie nation area. Sounds great. Well, that's episode two. Hey, uh, thanks everyone. Give us a subscribe, a comment, any questions for Andy, put them in the comments. Um, he'll jump in there, answer those. Um, please go to our YouTube channel, subscribe to that, and uh, we appreciate you watching today. Thanks yeah, a lot. Thanks so much. Sign up for some studies. Come, definitely, come definitely. play with some. They cool, pay good. Cool they pay cars. pretty good. Yeah, <laughs>